Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. I recently got to talk with E.J. Dion, Washington Post syndicated columnist and a contributing writer to Commonweal. His article on social Catholicism and the 2020 election is featured in our October issue. Catholicism, E.J. contends, is underperforming in American public life, and now it must rise to the task of our perilous moment. I spoke with E.J. not only about this idea, but also about the coming election, Catholic hostility toward the Catholic candidate Joe Biden, and the importance of something that E.J. calls radical moderation. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. DJ, thank you for being here. Well, it's a real joy to be with you. And if I might say so on a Commonweal podcast, uh, I discovered Commonweal magazine in our public library in Fall River, Massachusetts, when I was 12 or 13 years old. And it's been very dear to me ever since. The magazine has really had a lot of influence on how I look at the world. And so I'm very grateful to have a piece in the magazine, to have been part of the magazine for a long time, and to be here today. Thanks for saying that, EJ. It's nice to hear. And I do want to start with the opening of your piece in Commonweal, because I thought it was a very provocative line and a good way to get into the piece you were writing, and I'll quote it. Catholicism is underperforming in American life. Its social doctrine is well admired outside the confines of the church, it remains insufficiently appreciated by the faithful. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit about why you chose to frame things as a matter of underperformance. Right. As you know, Dominic, uh, and as readers who may have seen the piece know later on, I say, you know, there are others who would use harsher language uh, than I did about the church. But when I, I used underperform because I felt that these ideas, the ideas of Catholic social thought that have been with us since Rerum Novarum, elaborated on by popes we see as somewhat more conservative, not entirely fairly, like John Paul II and Benedict, somewhat less conservative, like John Twenty-Third or Pope Francis. These ideas have made an enormous contribution to public life, particularly, I argue, since around 1945 in the post-World War II period uh, that led up to Vatican II. And I see those ideas as not well known among the faithful. And what I had in the back of my head were two things, that when I bring up Catholic social thought when I'm teaching at Georgetown or I'm teaching at Harvard, it's really striking how many Catholic students have never really been exposed to the churches. Uh, social thinking, don't know about subsidiarity and solidarity and a whole lot of other ideas associated with church. The same is true of uh, some of my Catholic students up at Harvard. And I always carry around in my head a friend of mine, uh, I don't think she'd mind my mentioning her, my dear friend, uh, Melissa Rogers, who's a Southern Baptist, a progressive Southern Baptist, who said that one of the favorite courses she would teach every year down at Wake Forest Divinity School was Catholic social thought. Um, and she argued that all Christians who think about public life, and indeed secular people who think about public life, can profit from Catholic social thought. I think of my friend Bill Galston, my colleague at the Brookings Institution, whom I dare say who's Jewish, and I dare say knows more about Catholic social thought than an awful lot of our fellow uh, Catholics. And so what I see, that, so that's sort of a, a given. And then I think 
over the last 30 years, with the declining importance of Cardinal Bernadine's seamless garment and a consistent ethic of life, I think a lot of people in the hierarchy have either consciously or unconsciously downplayed uh, the importance of Catholic social thought and played up issues that they would see as non-negotiable, that I see more as culture war issues related to abortion or gay marriage, and that I think we've lost this really powerful emphasis. It doesn't go away. And many you know, strongly pro-life leaders of the church do care about Catholic social doctrine, but it really isn't part of the public conversation. And right now, I think we need a heavy dose of it. And that's why I wrote the piece. Mm. We're going to get into that a little more specifically later on, what you were just talking about, sort of the renewed embrace of, of the social Catholicism. But I, I do want to stick for a moment, too, with the way you framed the piece and some of the terminology you use, including this phrase. You write that the church's teaching represents a radical brand of moderation. I'm curious, how do you square these terms in the current political and, I guess, religious political context? Well, in a way, I think it's a good question because you're sort of catching the fact that I very consciously chose terms in my own way. And moderation can be seen as political positioning between left and right. But moderation, and this is in some sense the way I use it, a moderation also simply refers to a virtue, an approach to public life that acknowledges that a lot of the choices we face involve difficult, sometimes agonizing balancing acts, and that we need to think both about individual autonomy and the common good. Uh, We need to think about both our obligations and our rights. And under being a moderate in the terms I'm describing is to be someone who is, number one, not too sure of herself or himself. I love Reinhold Niebuhr's injunction that we must seek the truth in our opponent's error and the error in our own truth. But it's also to be aware that it's an Isaiah Berlin point that um, there were really a lot of agonizing choices out there. And sometimes you need to choose between one set of values and the other. But oftentimes you're trying to find the best balance you can between those. And then when I say radical, I mean that, and radical is surely something that uh, Pope Francis, God love him, has really brought back in the consciousness of Catholics. Uh, I think Francis is a radical, again, not simply in left-right terms, but in his critique of modernity, in his critique of how we behave toward the poor, in his critique of the way the church itself has acted. But the church at its best has been a radical critic of social injustice over a very long period of time, again, going back to Rerum Novarum. And uh, I end the uh, piece with a quotation from the uh, Catholic Bishop's 1919 program of social reconstruction. And that was a very, very forward-looking document that in many ways uh, foreshadowed the New Deal. And so you can have, a, I think, a moderate spirit and a radical analysis. You can understand the need for balance, but also understand the need that certain times and certain moments and certain injustices call for action uh, that goes beyond the predictable 
or the comfortably middle of the road. And that's, I think, again, at its best. And in my own life, when I think of Catholic thinkers who influenced me, that's what they called us to. I'm glad you sort of talk about the church at its best, because that kind of leads us to the next question. And again, you talk about this in your piece where the church is maybe operating at less than its best. And and you say, in fact, that the church's leadership shortchanges itself and shortchanges its membership and also the world. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit and how it's shortchanging these parties. Well, first of all, obviously, none of us can talk about the church without talking about the profound sin, failure, outrage of the scandal. And it really bothers me very much that the church has taken an awfully long time to come to terms with the damage that was caused, not simply by all of the individual acts of uh, particular priests, but in some ways, even more importantly, by how long it took for the hierarchy to fully embrace the fact that the church itself was far more concerned for a long period of time with self-protection than the protection of very, very vulnerable people. Here is a church that talks all the time about the most vulnerable, and those who were abused were among the most vulnerable. And that the cost of that are enormous. There are so many people in this world whom I deeply love who have left the church, not because they don't recognize the good done by so many instruments of the church, whether we're talking about Catholic relief or Catholic charities or homeless shelters or schools, they understand all those things, they admire all those things, but they pulled back in horror over what the church did and what the leadership failed to do about it. So that's obviously got to be spoken about. But the other piece when I say underperformed, and here I do, I I should be candid, and I try to be candid all the time, but I want to be particularly upfront here, that obviously I am on the more liberal or progressive side of the church. Obviously, the church has always had different points of view within it. And it really bothers me that some of the most conservative parts of the leadership, particularly right now, the parts who seem to be saying outright or suggesting that Catholics can only vote for Donald Trump because of Joe Biden's stance on abortion, I find that they have really, if not consciously, then certainly effectively downplayed how much the church could contribute to the solution or the beginning of solutions to a lot of our social problems. And so when I say underperforming, I want the church out there as aggressively as it has been at other recent moments uh, in our history on social justice questions. Yeah. So in in fact, you use the term, it's time for a renewed embrace uh, of this social Catholicism. But I guess, too, what are your expectations for this? I guess my expectations are just quite simple, which is live up to the doctrine that you preach. Uh, Let's just go back to Pope uh, John Paul II. I had the blessing of covering the Vatican or the New York Times back in the 1980s. I got to cover, while I was covering the Vatican, all of John Paul's trips around the world. And there are ways in which John Paul was more conservative than I am, but he offered such a powerful voice on issues such as labor rights and human rights and social justice. He accepted the uh, some of the advantages of markets, but he was really tough on unregulated capitalism. The same was true of Pope Benedict. 
You know, I, I underscore both of them because I'm not just talking about the innovations of Pope Francis. I'm talking about two popes revered by our more uh, conservative brethren uh, in the church who really lifted their voices on behalf of social justice at many moments uh, in their papacy. I once wrote a column when Barack Obama, when President Obama visited Pope Benedict, and I said, many will be surprised that the man in that meeting who was more to the left was Pope Benedict, that Pope Benedict had been more critical of capitalism than President Obama had. And so I simply want the church to reflect in its daily preaching, in the way it intervenes in public life, in what it asks of all of us and of all our politicians, to speak with the same force about social questions as they do about other questions. Yeah, and I guess in the American church, those other questions tend to be, as you say, single-minded focus on abortion and gay marriage, which you write is an enormous problem for both our politics and the church. But since you've written this piece, there have been other related developments to consider in this context, the selection of Amy Coney Barrett as a potential Supreme Court justice, and also a statement from two Catholic justices, uh, Justices Alito and Thomas, calling for revisiting or abandoning the Obergefell decision protecting same-sex marriage. So I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk about these developments in the context of the piece you wrote. Yeah, and and let me just, if I could, thank you for Mm -hmm. that. I I just want to call attention to a line in the piece that, you know, I'm sure some of my Catholic brothers and sisters out there might disagree with, where I argue that the opposition to LGBTQ rights is both a shame and a sin, and that when you look As a very practical matter, when you look at the defection of young people from the Catholic Church, and ex-Catholics are now one of the largest uh, religious groups in America, Mm -hmm. uh, which could give us pause, LGBTQ issues are among the most important. And I have long taken the view that was probably articulated best years ago by my friend David Brooks, and it really influenced my view of this. You know, that the gay marriage actually might best be seen of seen as an almost traditional demand. It is a demand of people who are gay or lesbian or uh, who, you know, who's, no matter who, what your sexual identity is, a demand for the opportunity to make a public de- declaration of fidelity and commitment. So there's that. But there's also simply charity and uh, brotherhood. The Catholic Church We have all known gay Catholics. Many of us have known gay priests, celibate gay priests, but some of whom are quite open about being gay or feeling that they are gay. And we should respect them. There's something wrong with the church, I think, not speaking with charity and openness toward a whole lot of good people out there who are trying to save themselves. I, I, I was struck, for example, during the campaign, I thought it was such a wonderful thing that uh, Pete Buttigieg spoke up as a an LGBTQ person who was himself religious. And actually, he's one of the only Democrats who ever ran for president who described himself as liturgically conservative. He said, <laughs> but the uh, so that's on on, you know, on that side of the question. And so I just think it, that emphasis is wrong. And the other controversial thing I say in the piece is I just don't see how politics whose main demand is to make abortion illegal, I see that as leading us down a blind alley, not only because our country is not going to make abortion illegal, uh, but also because I don't think it's the best way to defend life. We know that if abortion is made illegal, there will continue to be 
a lot of abortions. Women's lives might be more threatened. And I argue that the social emphasis of the church is more likely to reduce the number of abortions, is more likely to create a culture of the life, is more likely to protect the unborn, because so many of 70% of abortions roughly happen among poorer women. And I cite our friend and Commonweal contributor, Kathy Cavaney, that we need to find a route uh, that respects both autonomy and solidarity. And so there are many people, I, I, I res- there are so many people I respect in the pro-life movement who really have been powerful witnesses for social justice. And I don't mean to trash anybody in that respect, but I do think there are parts of the pro-life movement that have so elevated abortion over social justice that I think they have missed the storyline. And I think they potentially miss the greatest opportunity we have to reduce the number of abortions in the country. Mm. So let's sort of stay in the political moment too, because you write in the piece, there's no Catholic vote and yet it remains important. And I kind of want you to discuss that phrase, maybe in the context too of what we're seeing a few weeks out from the election here, there's this uh, sort of a Catholic hostility toward the Catholic candidate, Joe Biden. And I'm wondering if you can think of any precedent for this and how, how to think about it in terms of this Catholic vote that both doesn't exist, but that I guess is apparently still important. You have pulled together, I think, three excellent questions in one question there. Uh, let me let me try to take them one at a time. I first floated that idea, I think, in a piece almost 30 years ago. And the idea was that there's been less uniformity in Catholic voting than we often think that we look back to John F. Kennedy's election, where Kennedy, according to Gallup, got 78% of the Catholic vote. Uh, Well, of course he did. He was the second Catholic candidate and he became the first Catholic president. And an awful lot of quite conservative Catholics voted for Kennedy simply because they wanted to declare that Catholics have uh, a legitimate role to play in public life and that one of us can be president. From 1968 on, and especially from 1972 on, uh, but also before that, when Dwight Eisenhower actually got a very substantial share of the Catholic vote in the two elections in the 1950s, Catholics are a much more homogeneous group. And pretty well since 1972, Catholics have been a kind of 40-40-20 group in American politics. It's hard for Republicans to get less than 40% of the Catholic vote. It's hard for Democrats to get less than 40%. But there's a fairly large swing vote in the Catholic community. It's also, by the way, the fact that Catholics tend to vote for the winner. And we might want to ascribe that to the work of the Holy Spirit, although it's probably because Catholics are actually quite demographically diverse. We represent an interesting cross-section of the country. But they are important because there is a substantial swing vote among Catholics, you know, among the most orthodox There is a real push-pull between Catholic social doctrine, which pulls, if you will, more toward the left, and obviously issues like abortion, which in conventional terms pull more toward the right. So there's that fact. Catholics are also often cross-pressured between a kind of Catholic culture that is still rooted in some ways in the immigrant past and the working class past and their own current circumstance, where obviously there are many affluent Catholics. And I found this very disturbing that in the 2016 election, white Catholics pretty much voted like all white people and Latino Catholics voted pretty much like Latinos. Now, in one sense, that's not surprising. On the other hand, it doesn't sound like there was anything 
particular about Catholic social thought or Catholic teaching that really influenced the way in which Americans were thinking about politics. Some would say that's how it should be, but I just worry about that loss of distinctiveness. In terms of Catholic hostility toward the um, Catholic candidate, uh, ask John Kerry. John Kerry ran into, I believe, even more hostility than Joe Biden is running into. And I also think something very, there's an important difference between now and then, which is the conversation in 2004 was really dominated, the Catholic conversation was really dominated by a relatively small group of conservative Catholic bishops who spoke out rather vocally against Kerry, unmatched by any force on the other side of the church speaking out at least partially in his defense. I think beginning with Sister Simone Campbell's Nuns on the Bus movement, uh, you've had some pushback from the social justice part of the church. I think with the rise of Pope Francis, you're seeing an awful lot more lay people engaged in the issue. Um, And in the piece itself, I quoted Cardinal Tobin, Uh, who said, you know, his doubts are about the other guy, as he put it. He didn't refer to Trump, but the other guy was Trump. And so I think you're actually seeing, uh, if you will, uh, this may not be the best way to put it, but a fairer fight uh, within the church between the Democrat and the Republican. Lastly, I think Joe Biden, more than Hillary Clinton, I, I think one of the sadnesses of the Clinton campaign is she is a genuinely religious person whose faith really led to many of her political conclusions that led her to civil rights, for example. I wish she had talked a lot more about her faith. Joe Biden has been much more open about his Catholic faith. The convention highlighted it. Chris Coons, who's also a very religious person, talked about Biden's faith. And I thought it was really striking in the vice presidential debate that when um, uh, Vice President Pence mentioned Amy Comey Coney Barrett and suggested anti-Catholicism, the first words out of Kamala Harris's mouth, Senator Harris's mouth, were, Joe Biden and I are people of faith, Mm -hmm. and we're insulted by this, and Joe Biden would be only the second Catholic president. So I think you're seeing something different here. And my hunch, unless all of the polling is wrong right now, which I don't think it is, uh, you're going to see Joe Biden doing significantly better among Catholics, white Catholics, than Hillary Clinton uh, did back in 2016. You mentioned the vice presidential debate, and I guess I'm not so ridiculous as to ask for predictions at the moment, especially in a moment like this. But what do you make of this election season in that sense? And to the extent that you are maybe able to see a few weeks into the future, could you maybe give your thoughts? Let's put it this way. I think this I can say with confidence, which is a Biden landslide, if you look at these current numbers, is at least as likely as a very close race. You know, we always look at the polls uh, the way we want to, and we look at them today and said, ah, but this could be much closer. Trump could catch up. It's also the case that it could go wider. And in fact, what you've seen, Biden has widened his lead. I think some of this is simply a reaction to the virus, Trump's handling of the virus, and uh, his failures in that respect. But while the pandemic has played a central role in Trump's collapse, there's been a remarkable stability to Biden's lead over Trump. And that's where I think an awful lot of Americans, including some who voted for him, 
are tired of the divisiveness, tired of his approach to the presidency, tired of a president who seems intent on appealing only to his political base, in many cases, tired of the racism and nativism, you know, sometimes veiled, sometimes not, tired of, uh, you know, his declining in the debate to um, denounce uh, white supremacists. I think there people are just tired. And sometimes I joke that Joe Biden's central campaign promise is glorious tranquility. And I think Americans would like a little bit of peace and quiet for a while. And I think there's some of that. But I also think that the pandemic itself has underscored the need for real transformation in the country. You know, I'm not the first to say this, that the pandemic is like a social x-ray into the country. It's underscored just how deep our inequalities are. The fact that people who can work on the little machines that you and I are looking at at this moment are much better off than people who can't. They are either unemployed or they are people who have to work under extremely difficult, dangerous circumstances and often not for a whole lot of money. And so I think that there are people who voted for Trump who looked back. There was a Trump vote that was not about race or immigration as such, but was a vote of protest about the conditions in certain blue collar communities that have been ravaged by the global economy. And clearly some of those voters look and say, what has he actually done about these problems? What has he actually done for me, for my family? And so I think all of those factors are uh, operating against Trump. And so when I look about predicting the outcome, the question I keep asking myself, and listeners can ponder the question, and maybe they have a different answer than I do. But you know, if you think about all the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, how many of them do you honestly think will switch to Trump because they like his performance so much? And then when you look at all of the people who voted for Donald Trump, how many of them do you think have some doubts about the last four years? I think the second group has got to be substantially bigger than the first. And the 2018 midterm elections, I think, suggested that it's quite a lot bigger. I want to turn back to your Commonweal piece to finish up, EJ. Near the end of it, you quote Pope Francis, and I'll, I'll, I'll read what you wrote. This is Pope Francis's quote. If the church is alive, it must always surprise. So I guess I'll ask, what are the surprises you'd like to see? And to the extent that surprises can be necessary, what surprises are needed? I do see some signs of hope. I've seen some real signs of hope all through the Trump presidency on immigration, where across our divides within the church, from the bishops who most emphasize the social doctrine to the bishops who most emphasize abortion and the right to life, through all sorts of organizations of lay people, the sisters, God bless them, who are sort of real uh, in the forefront for social justice fighting. Everywhere you've had people in the church speak out on immigration and in defense of immigrants and refugees, that is important. And I think that does have a long-term effect. I think you are seeing bishops like uh, Cardinal Tobin, who are sort of trying to call Trump to account and trying to call Catholics to account and say, take a look at what's happening here. Um, you're our colleagues, uh, if I can be an us with Commonweal, our colleagues over at America Magazine. America is no left-wing magazine these days, and yet they had a very powerful uh, editorial about the dangers that President Trump represents. And obviously, you see it in the effervescence that Pope Francis himself 
calls forth in the church, the ways in which Francis is leading, you know, some people who left the church to give the church another look, uh, is leading Catholics who stayed in the church, either giving hope to those who were discouraged, uh, and in other cases, calling uh, faithful Catholics to think again about their attitudes toward the unregulated free market, toward poverty, toward injustice, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So I, you know, hope is a virtue. Uh, It's my favorite virtue. I I once wrote and I realized I was picking a fight with St. Paul. Mm -hmm. I said that uh, hope is the virtue on which faith and love depend. So I seem to be prioritizing hope over love. But you know, in my view, it's very hard to love properly or to have faith if you don't have hope. And I think that Trump and the witness, the reaction he's called forth and the crisis of conscience he's created among a great many people may be a sign of, it is, if I can go back to uh, uh, Pope uh, John Paul II, it's a sign of contradiction uh, that can also be a sign of hope. E.G. Dion's story on American politics and social Catholicism is titled Radical, Moderate, and Necessary. It appears in our October 2020 issue and is available on our website. E.J., it's been a pleasure having you here today. Thank you for your time. And a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonwealth staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>